So here's the thing, entrepreneurs, leaders, salespeople, we all want to create consistent, repeatable, and scalable ways to grow our business and our income. And we want to do it better, faster, and more seamlessly. Why? So we can actually enjoy our lives, take vacations, and spend the quality time we want with the people that we love. How do we do all this without spending a fortune or running ourselves ragged? That's the big question, and this show is dedicated to the answer. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Today I have who I refer to as the oracle of all things housing, Ivy Zellman. Uh, you know her name, and if you don't, you need to Google her. You need to try and get on her newsletter. But Ivy, I want to jump right in to interest rates, inflation, inventory, and now a potential war. A lot of people are asking, is there a correction coming? Well, it's a long list you gave. I think we, yes. are, we are in a war. Maybe maybe the United States isn't, but there is a war going on. So yes. you know, that should make everyone feel very uneasy. Yeah. Um, we have significant inflation and yes. we are looking at many of the uh, tailwinds that drove the economy from stimulus, uh, delaying paying student loan debt, having child care tax credits, and of course, unemployment excess benefits, all of that. Uh, with tailwinds that with that, as that is evaporating, it really arguably becomes headwinds. As it relates to residential real estate, I think that I don't see a correction coming near term. And I I think that the moderation is what I would call it, because thinking about where we didn't expect and where we've gotten it wrong is that as the primary buyer is so challenged to find a home, they want to buy homes. They're certainly, um, we're seeing pent up demand unleash that. And we see that reflected in the number of young adults, the 20 to 39 year olds that are leaving home. And that number just um, not shockingly went up, call it from the end of 2000, or let me think um, from 1990 to 2000, it was 16.4%, which is kind of like a normal number 20 to 39 year olds living at home. Yeah. And at the end of 2010, it shot up to 197 which really wasn't surprising because we were in the middle of a great financial crisis and all these young adults sure. were back at home. And we thought we called it the, the, the coiled spring that we would see yeah. all those young adults leave once they were gainfully employed. And it's hard to date, imagine living in your parents' house and or basement. So I think that the reality is that number we expected by the end of 2020 would normalize. Unfortunately, it didn't normalize. It went up even further and it went up another call it hundred basis points. We were, we were puzzled by it and we can go through a lot of reasons where maybe the stigma is not so bad anymore, living multi-generational, maybe it's affordability. You know, the data is telling us one thing and we're just not, you know, confident. We really appreciate it. This is a secular change, you know, certainly par- people getting married later, but the good news is COVID started unleashing some of that. And we started seeing that, that we were seeing decoupling. The numbers are still above where 19 were and they were elevated from the end of 10. So the reason I give you all that is to, pr- to recognize that millennials are buying. And at the end of uh, really 16 was the inflection point for home ownership rate. So people think about, oh, millennials are now buying. They've been buying for the last five years. Arguably, you know, that's been the whole trajectory of the growth um, off the bottom was really a millennial stepping up and time to get more shelter with their families growing. Now, what we've seen happen is that the primary buyer is whether they can't afford it, which is definitely potentially the case, or secondly, they just can't compete with cash buyers. So starting at the second half of 21, we really started seeing, which was a lull in the market, started um, 
evolving relative to the strength we had seen in you know 20 in the back half of 20 first half of 21 summer started hearing more builders saying you know things were removing our sales caps uh, we're seeing homes on the existing market maybe sit a little bit longer something feels like it's changing and then as rates started moving higher, we actually, well, this was in advance of rates moving higher. We started seeing sequentially um, in the second half acceleration greater than the typically seasonal slowing. Normally, sequentially, you see slowing. So we were doing better than historical seasonality. And I think what we explained that in the second half of, of 21 is what we really saw was a shift in investor sentiment. Yes. Investor sentiment above and beyond second home. I want to unpack all of that. And for the listener, um, this, I mean, this could be the first interview I've ever done where I didn't say, let me tell you who we're listening to, <laughs> right? But you're such a legend and you've been so kind to be on my show multiple times. Um, I actually want to unpack each one of these because you know, you're the one guest I know of. I, I can just say one thing and, and you're going to share brilliance, but I want to, I want the listener to unpack one at a time. So let's go to interest rates first. The Fed told us that they were going to raise the rates three times this year, right? As of today, we talked about, you know, the, the 10 year being, at, you know, uh, 189. You got massive sell offs in terms of the equity market with all the possible uncertainty or very real uncertainty. Why are they raising the rates? Well, inflation right now, you know, according to CPI running at 7% and recognizing that, you know, PCE, which is another measure that the Fed really focuses on consumer um, expenditures, personal consumer expenditures running hot over 5% mm -hmm. with inflation only accelerating right now. We're seeing oil prices just hitting $115 a gallon. Um, you, you're really thinking about the risk if the Fed doesn't start to pull back on the liquidity they provided this market, it's gonna hurt consumers significantly. It already is hurting consumers. Yeah about discretionary and non-discretionary spending. You know, we all have to pay our rent or mortgage mm -hmm. and utilities and all the costs of our, of everything in our lives are rising faster than our wages. Yeah. And the wages are, uh, there are upward pressure on wages, which helps a little bit, but really the, the, the feds um, rationale is not only late, but so necessary. Otherwise we'll have, you know, the continuation of our, of our buying power is just going to be, under tremendous pressure and it's hurting the very, you know, people that arguably the administration and the government should be helping because the affluent, right. Right. Just, they can get richer from it. So, you know, if you real estate has always been a hedge against inflation. Yeah. So if you own a portfolio of assets and home prices are rising um, at a very fast double digit pace, you're the winner and you can borrow against that and you have a lot of equity, but it's yeah. really incremental buyer if we're talking real estate and as yeah. mortgage rates, you know, we always focus on the 10 year, but you can't focus on the 10 year any longer. Yeah. Tell, okay. Tell us why, tell us why that's always been the sort of leading indicator of what's to come. The, the leading indicator has been the 10 year. And you know, when you look at the 10 year uh, versus the 30 year fixed mortgage rate spread, right. And, and that spread historically used to be anywhere. And, and I talk basis points or 1.6, 1.7%, 160, mm -hmm. 170 plus basis points. You know, when forbearance was first announced and the industry was really uh, scared to death that they were going to get, you know, massive um, advances and, and people just morally uh, taking on forbearance against um, better judgment. So spreads blew out to like over three points. Yeah. And, and then they've since come back, but the tenure, it's not following its normal course. 
because as MBS um, overall spreads and demand are, are being viewed differently from the investor. So if the Fed is no longer incrementally buying as many MBS you know, securities, there's less demand for it. So therefore the investors want a higher return. Yes. So as you'll see demand weakening, their you know, seemingly supply might also weaken. In other words, originations are gonna fall off because of refis going down. But I do think that right now um, the spreads are widening or it's closer to 200 today. So it's above its historic range. And the mortgage companies are kind of killing each other competitively, right. which for the consumer is good, you know, because that means that they're not passing the full extent of the pressure on MBS price to the consumer, but they're giving some of it to them. Because otherwise, if they, they can't write mortgages and make no money. They can't right. lose money on every mortgage. So there's a little disconnect from the typical 10 to 30s. It's really the primary secondary spread. So if the conforming today is is call it a 30 year conforming loan is under four. Um, you and I both know just looking back over time, that's still a historically low rate, but when you're going from a 2.65, right? You, what feels like, you know, a less than a year ago to four, it feels like an enormous amount of money. And when you're talking about a first time buyer, the incremental increase of either their payment and or their purchasing power going down feels like a lot. So if you could, if you could talk broadly to, every real estate agent on the planet who has five buyers right now that are concerned about interest rates, or maybe they're not, but I think they are. What's the advice you say to that buyer about settling their, you know, their mindset around, I should still buy a house or maybe I should wait. You know, I always think about um, ownership and the perspective it's better. You're better off than renting. And in many cities that may be mathematically not the case like New York city or let's say San Francisco, but in most cities sure. in the United States, you are better off being a homeowner than a renter. And the real simple reason is you can lock in a 30 year fixed mortgage rate and, and have your just, you know, what I call non-discretionary shelter capped. And you can also build equity. Um, you know, there are costs associated with property taxes and other costs above and beyond to maintain your home. Yeah. On the other hand, as a renter, every year it's a variable cost and that could increase on you in an inflationary environment, rents are gonna to continue to rise. So that's the setup. Now you have to ask yourself though, from a timing perspective, am I buying at the peak? Am I buying at a market level where prices could start to moderate and therefore you know, sequentially, I may be buying right when I uh, should arguably be on the sidelines. I, th I think it's too difficult to time the market and I don't see a massive correction and we can talk about that. But what yeah. I would say is if you need a home, and you're busting at the seams wherever you're living, whether it's another kid, you just guys, and you know, everybody uh, has an extra kid in, this, in their square footage and they need um, more space. Those are the life decisions that should be the catalyst to determine to buy today. Not because, you know, oh my God, am I gonna lose money or make money? I think it's no. more about lifestyle and that's how we've always presented it. So if you're not in a rush and the market feels frothy, which it does, I think that it'd be better to probably be patient and maybe sit on the sidelines as long as you're comfortable in your current space. So yeah. that's how I, I approach it. So, so let's look at it from a different perspective. The, the second of the three eyes is inventory. And you know, you go back to 2004, five, six, right? Where we had this massive number of new construction at all kinds of different price ranges. We made it easy for first time buyers to come in. Um, I was told, we have an equal or in some cases greater number of new construction inventory currently in process that will be hitting this year, like another 1.5 million properties. Um, can you talk about that? 
Can you talk about what, what you're forecasting for regular everyday sellers putting their home on the market? What What's going to happen? Because inventory is, I don't want to say it's an issue because we sold six and a half million houses last year. We just don't have enough inventory for the right type of buyer today. Is that ever going to get fixed? Well, right now the supply chain is broken. And to the extent that, you know, cycle times are extended with, um, you know, two months on average takes longer mm-hmm. to build a home. So right now the backlog of single family homes is at a 2006 record level yeah. uh, or not a record, but back to 2006 levels. It looks like a hockey stick. So we've got a tremendous amount of homes in backlog that will get delivered. Do they get delivered as fast as the consumer would like, as fast as the potential prospective buyer would like, because they're building spec as well as doing um, for sale. And that on the multifamily side, we've got a backlog that looks like a hockey stick as well. And that's coming in suburbia, very small amount of it being condo, but mostly within suburbia, there, there is urban as well. That's at a multi-decade high. So, you know, it's, I feel like the, you know, the boy who cried wolf or winter's coming, you know, at some point yeah. the, the homes are going to come. But I think that where they're building, they, the predominant um, new construction is going to be on the called tertiary market on the outer rings because right. they can't come closer in, not because there's not land. Right but it's because it's so expensive and there's less land to build on. So for builders, you know, they typically will drive out to, you know, whatever tertiary hinderlands, you know, where the cows don't want to live right. and they'll start building. And in addition to the builders, we also have developer operators that are doing a build for rent strategy. Yep. So, you know, we'll, we'll see as the supply, we're watching completions, which have been under pressure. And because we know the builders, what they're telling us, you know, we're talking to 45% of the new home market through the public companies. And then we actually survey another 15 to 20%. So we have a pretty good read on what their at least expectations are, call it for the next three months, next uh, nine months. And they're very confident that they're going to grow community count. Um, Toll Brothers said we'll grow communities this year, 10%. We have other builders growing five, others trying to grow 20%. So whether they can get those communities up and uh, in the timely fashion that they expect is a lot to do with some of the you know challenges we're seeing not abating. So yes. the good news is that even with those challenges, they plan on growing. And I think that will provide more supply to the market. Now, where and what price point, you know, there's That's not the, places yeah. you can buy in the twos anymore. So, right. find, you know, there's really a rare part of the country now that, is in the top, call it 40 MSAs, where you can find a brand new home in the twos, maybe high twos and a rare community. You're in the threes, that's also getting harder and harder to find. So you're finding yourself in the fours. And I was on the phone with a builder in um, the, um, um, uh, what's it called? Um, Richmond, Virginia, uh, uh, that area. And they're a little bit more primary in that market than Mm -hmm. non-primary. Uh, military and uh, it's a, a thing. It starts with the V. Hampton Road. That area is, um, you know, in the fours, seeing a little bit of um, moderation. Where you'd gone from selling and having to cap at four a month. Now they're not in some of their communities hitting that four. So mm-hmm. I talked to some brokers in areas like Houston, San Diego, Austin. Um, seeing a little bit change. Nothing that's you know, concerning, but it's just on the margin, maybe home sitting a little bit longer, nothing, everything flying off the shelf, you know, counter that with, uh, you know, uh, open houses that you have people, you know, around the block and right. there's multiple right. 
occur. So I, I'm not suggesting that the market everywhere is slowing that you'd say, oh my, oh my, you know, I'm really worried. But you know, the best way to cure inflation is just at some point keep raising prices and at some point the consumer will push back. So yes. but the consumer's not the only buyer right now. That's the problem. I think you've got multiple buyers and they're having the primary buyers having that trouble competing. So before we talk about the investors, because you know I'm seeing the same thing, you're obviously much closer than I am, but I have one of my clients has an account where he's buying 75 homes a month in Phoenix. He has enough for, for I, I won't name the fund, but it's, you know, it's significant. And now he's getting two more, let's just call it MSAs, you know, Denver, and you know, I think the other one's gonna be Dallas. And in each one of those marketplaces, they want to buy 75 houses a month, but we've, we're going to get into that. But I want to stop first and say, what about the normal everyday homeowners? Are we still seeing migration patterns? What's causing that seller to sell today? I go back to like John Byrne stuff around um, super seniors or the, you know, the move up, trade up, you know, homeowner who wants to get to that next level in terms of housing. What are you seeing from a from a trend standpoint that my client should be paying attention to? Who's gonna be selling next? Well, I think that the boomers and Xers are taking advantage of lifestyle changes. And you know, as the boomers are in re retreating, you know, arguably retirement age and they're in the 60s and they have tremendous equity, the, the pandemic has really fueled or created sort of a catalyst to maybe push them into a co-primary or dual property situation. And, and that's been migration in from the North and the Midwest to the South, <laughs> a new thing, by the way, it's been going on for decades. If you went right. back and just looked at the data that we have, that's hundred percent sample size from the decennial survey, just go back to 2010 and look at that data. You know, the blue States are growing at best kind of low single digits where the red States and, you know, if you want to call it smile States growing, you know, double digits. So that, that, divergence is is not new what what's happened in the last two years with the pandemic is it just magnified it and the biggest winners are no income stack state no income tax states whether Florida Texas you know clearly Nevada Tennessee, yeah. but Tennessee and those are benefiting from a sharp increase in sort of the boomers taking advantage of an arbitrage the arbitrage is I not only can I with rates that that troughed at 2.65, could I sell my expensive, you know, Northeast house that now I can finally sell at a price, you know, in the suburbs of New York that I was never going to see. Now I can get that price. I can go to the South anywhere, have a way better cost basis and lower taxes. So we're seeing that migration continuing. I think that there is some, you know, signs of some places it's starting to cool, like in Utah, where it was on fire and then right. a Boise. Um, so I think that that trend won't change. I think that the the, the secular tailwind is as we age and our boomers are just as big as our millennials. The difference between the boomers and the millennials is that the boomers increased from prior the generation prior before them by fifty three percent. The millennials wow. were a fourteen percent increase for the generation before them. So mm -hmm. they're both about the biggest size, but everything has to be rate of change. We can't ever yeah. live in absolutes. Yeah. So as incremental boomers are aging, they're going to be contemplating selling their homes, downsizing, looking for dual properties, and 
the Xers are right there with them, but the size of the Xers, which I'm an Xer, you're an Xer, maybe I think you're an Xer. So yeah, you're an Xer. So the Xers and the boomers combined have also accumulated a great amount of wealth, you know, for those that are exposed, even if it's just through their 401k, we've had a 30 year tailwind of the stock market. So there is a lot of opportunity and the boomers and the Xers are also helping their children, their millennial children, and they're giving them the down payment. I thought it was interesting Redfin came out and said that 25% of the purchases, I believe in 21, were um, used um, from the stimulus checks that they were given. So young adults that would otherwise have not been able to buy got stimulus money, 25%. And then Redfin said 13% used their cryptocurrency gains <laughs> to buy homes. So we, we have had maybe more incremental buying because people have been flushed with cash. What I'd like to watch and, and try to appreciate is when that cash is diminished, whatever incrementally it's coming from, right. and that, that starts to become, as I said, it's not, it's not exactly a headwind, but when you reverse a tailwind or you eliminate it, it in essence is a headwind. And so we'll see where consumers come up with the down payments, which they were struggling with for certain, for if it, at least as a first time buyer. Um, I think that on the good news for the existing homeowner, once again, is they've had so much equity accumulation just in the last two years, two years and, and looking at the actual dollars, it's almost $4 trillion of incremental equity yeah. that's been realized. And so, you know, will you unlock that equity by contemplating selling? Well, if it makes sense for you, because you have a great arbitrage. Mm-hmm. So is the United, is everyone is a shuffleboard of the United States going to go berserk and everyone's going to go from the North to the, to the South or the Midwest to the Southwest. I think that starts to moderate because I think the people that can do that for the most part, they'll still do it. So just the question is, will it sustain at at these elevated levels or just moderate back to where we were and what we were doing? Uh, So that's something I think about. I do think the first time buyer is the loser in this because, you know, when you look at, the rent inflation, it's just, it's so egregious, yeah. it's so yeah. egregious to the consumer and, and the prospective buyer who would otherwise want to save is now going to be spending a lot more of their income on non-discretionary um, parts of what they have to spend, i.e. rent. So the mm-hmm. primary buyer is the loser in all this, really. Hey, it's Tom Ferry. Question, what's your favorite social media platform? Are you big on Insta? Do you love to tweet? No matter where you answer, I'd love for you to connect with me there. All you gotta do is just type in at Tom Ferry and follow and let's you and I connect. I wanna be able to deliver the right content, the right ideas, the ways to help you grow your business, stay fired up, keep moving, be in action and run plays that work in the platform that matters most to you. So subscribe and I'll see you there soon. What they have to spend, i.e. rent. So the primary buyer is the loser in all this, really. You're, I was going back, yeah, I was going back to inflation. And it's like, I, I wrote down the, the notice, you know, we're at a 40 year high of inflation. How do you see this impacting the rental market broadly? And, and you're exactly right. People that are paying rent are, I think, in more trouble than the person that's trying to save money to buy a, their first house. And there's no inventory for them. Well, the, I think what ultimately happens is that we'll, we'll force consolidation. We'll force consolidation of households because people cannot continue to pay the rents and everything else is going up in their lives. I mean, renewal rents, they have what's called loss to lease. I don't know if you've heard yeah. that terminology. So there's a gap between the renewal and where move-ins are. 
and people are getting notices to get, get them to mark to market and they're forcing them to have to find alternative shelter. And that's like maybe more evident in the class B product, but sure. we're seeing stress in the market and you're going to see evictions rise. You're going to see foreclosures increasing. You're going to see delinquencies rise. We're already seeing it. So what we all forget as a nation is that prior to COVID, you know, it, it was housing was, you know, just okay. Right. And it was really a right. tale of two markets. But now yeah. that we, we do had, or we have had consumers struggling with down payments, consumers struggling with too much debt. And so that kind of all went away. And so that's why when you snap your fingers and two years later, what's really changed? Mortgage rates went down. Right. The government flushed the system with cash and liquidity mm-hmm. and money and gave you checks like from the, from the sky, you know, there, we were raining money. And what do people do? Well, I'm not going to pay my mortgage. I'm not going to pay uh, my student loan debt. I can go buy a house. So take that out of the system and what's left. We have a primary buyer who, by the way, at the end of 2020 in the fourth quarter, the number of renters converting to homeowners skyrocketed from quarter yep. to quarter. We, we went from a trend line of call it two plus million, 2.3 million a year, renters convert to owners. And it got to 2.85 million nearly in fourth quarter of 20, which was looked like a hockey stick. And then it stayed elevated for another quarter or two, and then is now back to like 2.45 million. So it's still trending above where I guess historical trend line would be. But that moderation in the renter converting to homeowner is either suggesting one of two things. They can't afford it anymore, or they're still buying. Obviously, 2.4 is above the trend line, right. but it's just not as robust. Or they just can't compete with cash buyers because in the cash market, year over year, two-year stacked purchases, over 40% of purchases are made with cash. On an annualized basis, the NAR just reported 27% of the, in the January closing data, whereas mortgages were down 13%. So your primary buyer is moderating in the face of acceleration in investors. And that's really the dynamic that we're faced. And even if the builders provide more shelter in the third ring of the market and they're bringing on quote unquote, a first time buyer product, you know, you've got to, you know, deal with what is now a much more significant level of inflation to buy that house today. And I do think that rates matter at each, you know, I never think about absolute rates. I yeah. never, I think that it's a rate of change mm-hmm. and what does it do the monthly payment? So yeah. as of the fourth quarter of 21, with home prices up as much as they were and rates not even yet up, the monthly payment on average for a first-time buyer using FHA mortgage and assuming you know none of the incremental costs of property tax, and we do incorporate insurance, um, homeowner insurance was running up year over year 17%. Right now, year to date, we're up more like 25%. So it does matter. Yeah. But the good news for the consumer that can get a home, if we are actually going to remain in an inflationary environment, they can be a winner unless we start to see that the demand on the investor side really peters out for various reasons that we can speak to. But I'm an analyst that understands what the investor impact will be and how much of its investors. And I can tell you more about the investors. I understand what the primary buyer is doing. What I never can get my arms around is what's going to turn the investor sentiment and when. And, and that's the only way we can, you know, obviously think through the, the potential reasons, but to actually time that right one, it just is not something that I think that any of us truly understand because the alternative investments 
in the world we live in right now are not compelling. And until they don't get their return, that's when they'll probably continue. It's only when they hit the wall. And when do they hit the wall is the question. So I'm being mindful of your time, but I got four questions I got to ask. And we're touching on one, which I want, I want just your insight on investors. Um, you touched on migration patterns and, and the note that I wrote behind it, you know, you're talking about back since 2010, blue states versus red states, single digit versus double digit. My second question is, where do we get, where do we get this information? If, if an agent's listening right now or a team leader or a broker's listening right now, what are the, let's just start easy. What are the go-to sources to get the kind of information that they could be more educated to create better content, inform their buyers and sellers? Let's go info first. Well, everything, you have to just go to zelmanassociates.com. Thank you very much. Read our newsletter and uh, read our blogs. And if you want to purchase research, you can also do so. But, you know, we rely on, you know, our secret sauce is really more owners and operators. Yeah. So we rely on C-suite executives, not public. We watch what they're saying, but we really are relying on the people with boots on the ground. And then we have that married with lots of data that's available, publicly available data. And we do have some proprietary data that we aggregate and have some AI and things that we are utilizing. So I would say it's a secret sauce that, you know, unfortunately not everyone can replicate, but the government provides a tremendous amount of data that is accessible and is available um, to anyone. And looking at Census Bureau data, reading the decennial survey that came out, anyone can access that. Yeah. So listen, everybody, um, I am a subscriber with Ivy Zellman and just first of all, just for your Saturday morning emails of whether it's, you know, personal or fun or the team. Um, but to be able to go deep on the daily to know exactly what's going on from your, you and your analyst's perspective um, for me is there is no greater education. If you're in this space and you get paid in direct correlation to the value that you deliver the marketplace, the value we deliver today is certainty and certainty comes from data points, right? So hands down. So thank, not even a shameless self-promotion. I'm telling them sign up. Okay. The big question we started with it in the beginning was when I said to you, interest rates, inflation, inventory, and a war is a correction coming. Correction coming, Ivan. Tell us what do we need to know. There'll be um, parts of the markets that correct, and that's really contingent on when the supply hits. What with the amount of supply we have in backlog, I'm not worried about a significant significant correction in the Midwest where there's very little new supply in backlog. Um, I think there are parts of the country where supply is very constrained, um, and probably will have um, more weather the storm that might be brewing. You know, you get into the Southwest, a market like Phoenix, even with the strength of the inbound migration, even with the strength of what is perceived to be the strongest job market and Amazon's adding this and this one's adding there. I think that the reality is that we're building more than the incremental households there. So I think Phoenix would be a market that's ripe for correction. I think you could see in Austin, Texas markets, the Carolinas, where there's just tremendous amount of new construction. The, The sad news of the industry is like everyone's using the same data to determine where to go and expand and right. where best capital. Is it yeah. a shock that they're picking Austin or Phoenix or Boise? So at some point, because they don't talk to each other about it, no. you know, they just go out and, and buy land and developers are happy. They've got a lot of um, incremental buyers, mm-hmm. but yep. like land prices nationally are up nearly 40%. Right. And, and that's not even including like a Madison, Wisconsin, that's up 10 
you know, yeah. look at Phoenix and Austin as an example, they're up significantly more than that 50, 75%. Yeah. And builders just have to drive further out. So they keep building more and more product. Um, right now, fortunately, they're able to sell what they've completed, but we, we just look at that inventory and backlog and think that that's where there'll be pressure. And then that circles back to ring two and ring three and ring one, because yeah. if that market's cooling, I think that the iBuyers, you know, if they were to step away, like in Phoenix, you know, think about 20%. Um, I think that's too high. I think it's more like 12% um, yeah. of the overall market. When Zillow was buying open door well, offer pad, yeah, Zillow's they, out. So yeah, but there's enough that uh, activity right. we'll just say that matters, but it probably yeah. is more zip code dependent. Yes. But if they were for whatever reason, liquidity such where they were to pull back, I think that would enable the primary buyer to come up, come back in. And, and I do think that there's a lot of the um, I buyers are selling direct to SFR. Yeah. And, and, and therefore the primary buyer doesn't really even get a look at it because that's a really nice, easy channel for them to sell to. Not all of it, but, yeah. you know, I think there's markets that could correct. And, you know, I'd be more concerned about uh, not, not looking for a GFC. There's just too much equity in the, yeah. in the market for that. Okay. So, so I want you to unpack. So when I say correction and you answer correction, you know that there's a really good chance the listener thinks 2007, 8, 9, 10. Right. So I, I said no GFC. I mean, yeah. you know, what we what got us into trouble with GFC was that it was all leverage. Yeah. So I think that there's so much equity in the system and that gives me the most conviction. Right. You know, we'll definitely see foreclosures rising, but a lot of that will be negligible because there is so much equity and people can sell and, and right. consolidate households. But we will see that. But but if I can if I can just say though around foreclosures, correct me if I'm wrong, we've averaged you know, 200,000 foreclosures a quarter in the U.S. for as long as we can remember. We just had the massive spike of 8, 9, 10 that threw everything all out of whack. And then because of the moratorium on payments and making it easier for people to stay inside their houses during COVID, right, all of a sudden you start reading headlines that say, you know, foreclosures are up, you know, 100%. So it went from one to two, right? So, so when you say foreclosures, that's also going to scare people. Yeah. Well, foreclosures is a, you know, like you, a natural part of um, what this country has on an annualized basis, unfortunately, mm -hmm. just like we have a natural level of evictions that didn't happen. Right. And right. so, you know, maybe there will be an elevated level just because we were so below normal. For yes. a while. I'm not really concerned about it. Um, you know, what worries me is the investors, the appetite changes. So when I look at existing home sales in 2021, the entire increase of 9% was 100% explained by investors. And let's just say that as investors consist of true second homeowners, mm -hmm. private investors that are looking for diversification from the stock market that are gonna rent them out and hopefully get cash flow annuity streams. You've got fix and flip buyers, you've got I buyers, you've got, I call those the liquidity providers. Yeah. And certainly you've got SFR slash institutional capital buying. So if you, if you say, you know, that asset class is in favor and it's really a new, exciting asset class to many. In other words, it's been around single family rental for a long time, but a lot of the, um, I guess, last two years, it just became exponentially on fire. So is it a, is that asset class gonna deliver the returns? Right, and right. And you're gonna see that therefore carry the market for the next five years in an inflationary environment and keep the market tight and keep HPA rising, or does the bloom come off the rose because a lot of their expectations or occupancies running at 
I've got double digit rent growth. And now all of a sudden what I bought, I paid up for the next house. I'm not getting those rents anymore. Yeah. It's going, I can't afford it. There's not enough bodies because there's more supply. So those are the things that we'll be watching. But to me, it's not the GFC because of the amount of equity. But I do worry that these investors at some point don't either, whether they don't hit their return metrics or they lose their appetite and Resi does no longer isn't the prettiest girl at the dance and something changes. Maybe that, you know, inflation is going to guard against that because it's yes. a great place the world views right. to hedge themselves. And, you know, is it all bad that we have this many investors? I mean, the Canadian market is laden with investors and it's just been right you know, on fire for decades um, with, yep. with investors being the primary driver of that growth. So I just think what is what's disappointing is the fact that the primary buyer is really the loser in this. Yeah. So for your, for realtors, I guess, work with investors, you know, there's lots right. of investors that would like to buy um, homes to create this annuity stream to give them, you know, diversification. So last question, then I'll let you go. And and I'm always so grateful for the time. Like, thank you so much. This, I mean, I'm I'm the interviewer and I have three pages of notes already. <laughs> so the typical, typical Tom Ferry podcast, I'm taking notes like crazy. So the last question is when we chatted last, we were talking about, you know, call it roughly 138 million homes in America. We know that approximately 40% of them have no mortgage. Um, of the remaining balance, it was half had an interest rate lower than three and a half. And the balance had an interest rate higher than three and a half. My question for you is uh, if I'm a smart agent today and I'm marketing, should I be marketing to the people more that have that interest rate that is, you know, 3.6 today, 3.7, that they've just, they just never refied? Mm -hmm. Or should I be just marketing to everybody to find out who wants to unlock their inventory? Well, I think or not inventory, excuse me, who wants to unlock their equity? Well, I certainly think you have to always be marketing to prospective sellers. And right now it's a great time to sell. It's an incredible time to sell. And, and the numbers, just to give you some perspective, roughly, 70% of homeowners in the United States are locked in below 4%. And, and yep. that number, um, obviously, for, just for comparative purposes, at the end of 18 was 39%. So we've had a massive refi boom that has unlocked tremendous wealth for people that have taken advantage of that significant drop. So if I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, you know, it's such a hot market, my house has doubled in the last two years, oh my God. I don't know what I'm going to do. I think that it's so much more expensive to go buy another house, but you can convince a prospective seller that, you know, you can probably keep your payment the same, but if you take that equity out and you, you know, are able to move to a market where it's a more affordable, you know, that that's the, that's the opportunity right now is, is the arbitrage still exists if someone has the wealth and the wherewithal and are thinking about, that demographic of the Xer and boomer that maybe I don't want to be freezing my butt off anymore in, you know, Pennsylvania or New York. And I'm thinking about it. And if you can kind of hit them where it's time to do it now, because the market can't sustain the level of appreciation, because we're going to hit really some affordability pressures. I would definitely be marketing to that group, but keep in mind, the closer we get to a mortgage rate that makes that a disincentive, like if mortgage rates would go to four and a quarter, we thought 4% for sure would slow the market down because 70% are below that. And it's right. not right now. And I think it's more again, because of the incremental cloudiness and the investors that are really fueling the growth. 
but I do think that the higher the rate environment, um, you know, gets the more challenged and disincentivized those homeowners will say, you know what, I'm good. I'm locked in at three. I'm sure. not going to this low rate unless I'm going to go to Nashville and live where my grandchildren are. And, you know, I can find something and it's still a good arbitrage, but yeah. those, will, well, those will start to moderate because people will start to get nervous. So um, we'll see, hopefully rates don't go up much more than where they are right now. At what point, I know I said to you last question and I'm asking another question, I can't help it. At what interest rate percentage do you think it makes everybody pause? Is it five? Is it five and a half? Or is it 4.25 like you just said? You know, I think rate of change again. Every If you call a bank, you'll get a different rate every bank you call. And right. so there's loan level pricing adjustments. There's, you know, um, obviously dependent on FICO scores and debt service. I think just focus on the rate of change of the monthly payment. And we're up 25% right now, roughly. So if home prices go up another 10% and interest rates continue to march higher, I think that, that the combination and the rate of change will start to impact. You know, if you arbitrarily pick a number, I mean, 5%, I think you'd have pretty much everyone other than those that live under a rock and have really bad credit that have already refined in their lower levels. I think um, so yeah. much too is the market is really going to be challenged at a 5% mortgage rate but I think it could get more challenging just even going up four and a quarter, four and a half for the primary buyer again, not that investor because the investor is going, Oh, I got 10% inflation. Yeah. So what if, you know, I've got to pay an X more dollars. I'm, I'm going to get a better return in the long run if I lever it up. Love it. Love it. So Ivy, what's been so great is I'm looking at the, the two, like, like the gen wires that are sitting behind me that are actually, you know, doing all the recording here and social. And I've been telling them for the last how many months now, buy a damn house. So I think you guys just got it from the Oracle. So she, you know, she's the wizard of Oz, the real deal. Only, only if they need to though, don't, don't do it as speculation. Oh, no, 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 we're, yeah, we're, I'm way, we're way beyond that. Like I, I care too much about these two. It's like, no, buy this forever house or better yet, do a hack house, right? And get, get three of your buddies to pay your mortgage. All right. So Ivy Zellman from Zellman and Associates, ladies and gentlemen, I, you should listen to this at least 10 times. And then you might want to send this to five, eight, 10 clients that are on the fence and nervous because you're hearing from someone that has much broader perspective and can work through all the noise and get to the truth. So Ivy, you're a blessing. I totally appreciate you. I'll let you run. Thank, Thank you, you again so much. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Take care. Thank you. All right. Take care, everybody. If you want more information about this episode, including my show notes, mentions, links, and everything else, make sure you visit tomferry.com slash podcast. That's tomferry.com slash podcast. Thanks again and talk to you soon.